Uh, just good to be back with you guys. Um, just always good to, to sit under the Word and hear the Word. Uh, if you're new or visiting, we believe that the, the, the Bible, the Scriptures, which we're about to sit under and hear from and learn from, uh, is really God's active Word to us, that it shapes and forms us up into the ways that He desires us to be and live. So uh, we're grateful to just walk through books. If, uh, if any one of you are older burden kids, you're going to be taught in the classroom. You can head out to, to Bob Cope. He's in the back. Otherwise, uh, we're going to roll in. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the back uh, table for you to have. If you do have a Bible, why don't you open it? Go to Luke chapter 13. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, for a long time, um, really for uh, almost two years now, I think. And so uh, here's what I want you to know. When we hit the fall, we're just going to take, don't worry, a short, uh, about four-week break to really talk through um, just acts of worship. Um, there's a lot that happens on Sunday that I feel like we don't really uh, maybe take time to consider why we do those things. So we want to walk through why do we believe in the preached Word of God? Why do we believe that that's necessary for our time together? Why do we love to take the Lord's Supper? What does that mean? What's happening there? Why do we sing songs? What's the point of us singing and declaring His praise? Um, what's the point of us praying and being in fellowship? So uh, we're going to do that once we hit the fall. So just to keep on your radar, uh, that'll maybe be about four weeks that we take to do that. Uh, but right now we're just going to keep plodding and plowing through Luke. We'll take that pit stop, and then we'll get back to Luke. So um, Luke chapter 13 is where we are this morning. Um, if you're uh, wondering kind of uh, what Luke is or, or what Luke's gospel is about, Luke is this writer who was uh, just a good friend of the Apostle Paul who wrote almost half the New Testament. Um, he was a physician by trade. He was a doctor. So that's why actually in this gospel, you see him talk a lot about healings, a lot about um, just the medical world. Um, you're going to see that this morning with, with this woman who is in the synagogue who's uh, been disabled, crippled over for over 18 years. So uh, he, has a, he has a keen awareness of that and a keen awareness of seeing Jesus really lay before his hearers, really this guy Theophilus who he's writing to, the life and teachings of Jesus. And he wants you to be persuaded that the life, of teachings, and, that the life and teachings of Jesus aren't just so that you can no more stuff about a historical figure, um, these are actually, this is actually a person who by the very nature of his person and work transforms your very soul. So uh, we, we look at Jesus in this gospel, not just to see a guy who lived and died and rose and, and did some cool things. We look at him to say, okay, how does that make me different? How does that make me new? How does his personal work that was done outside of me with no help from me transform me? So um, that's what we're going to see this morning. Now, now here's where uh, we land in Luke chapter 13. Um, Luke chapter 9 was a significant part where Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem. We saw that a number of weeks ago, and that's basically Jesus saying, my face is now directed towards the cross. I'm on a mission. I'm going to ransom sinners to myself through my blood, through my death, through my resurrection. That's going to happen, right? Because his face is set there, and so he starts warning and laying out implications of what it means if you're not in the kingdom of God. So we've seen Jesus be straight up angry the last number of weeks because he's not doing it out of, out of arrogance or out of trying to spite you. He's trying to lovingly warn you and call you to himself in that is what's called the kingdom of God. Because before this, he's been preaching, teaching, healing, and letting people know, hey, this kingdom of God exists. You don't enter by your works. You don't enter by your merits. You don't enter by your rights. You don't enter by your attendance in the synagogue. You don't enter by the amount of prayers you pray. You enter it through the loving act of a king of that kingdom and giving of his son who sheds his blood for you and pays the debt in full. So we've been seeing that all throughout all 
all of the, the way up to now where his face is set and he starts kind of warning now his tone changes and he starts saying hey if you're not in the kingdom of God here's what could happen right he talks about your proverbial court date he talks about how we're all living on borrowed time he talks about how you don't know when the Lord is going to return so you got to be ready you got to be prepared and um, here this morning we're going to see Jesus show another shade of himself because that's what great in walking through books is you see all the different shades and colors and types and actions of that are the infinite perfections of the person of Jesus Christ. And so here you're going to see um, this understanding in Jesus that he will continue to go after the proud, continue to go after the haughty, continue to go after the self-righteous who think that they can barter with God and buy their way in the kingdom. And he's going to be super tender and super gracious and super compassionate to those who are keenly aware of their need for grace those who suffer, those who have illness. You're gonna see this all the time throughout the Gospels and see it especially this morning. So um, just so you know, the, the religious of the day, you got scribes, Pharisees, basically the, the scribes were people who kind of learned the law, taught the law, Pharisees followed them around and, and helped out with that. They, they basically had this system it was basically a righteous system, a works-based system. So the more you followed these guidelines, then the more righteousness you were gaining, and then therefore God was more pleased with you. And these men, these religious, these rulers of the synagogues actually thought that, that they were sufficiently pleasing God in their actions. They actually thought they were, they were making God look, look favorably upon them through this. And Jesus is going to come, specifically today, and he's been coming to destroy that illusion. He's going to continue to say, it doesn't matter what you do. That's not going to earn anything for you, right? I mean, our life of righteousness is birthed out of him transforming us first. So we don't try to be righteous for him to let us in the kingdom of God. He puts you in the kingdom of God. He indwells you. He seals you. He makes you new. So now you produce righteousness you couldn't produce beforehand. So um, if you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, it's not someone who's perfect. It's not someone who doesn't sin. It's someone who repents of sin and looks to the one who's perfect, who makes them perfect in his person and work. Follow that? Okay, that was a lot. All right, so let's, let's move into Luke chapter 13, and here Jesus is going to keep saying what he basically said back in chapter 4, and this is the last recorded spot you have of Jesus teaching in the synagogue before he goes to the cross, right? So the first time you have him is in chapter 4 of Luke, where he basically looks out among the crowd and says, hey, you think you're spiritually rich? You're actually spiritually bankrupt, Right? You think you're, you're spiritually free? Well, you're really oppressed by Satan, sin, and death. You think that you have spiritual sight? You really don't have any spiritual sight at all. You're, you're, you're clouded until the Holy Spirit of God illuminates your mind and, and lets you see the glories of who is Jesus. And so and he's going to keep rolling that out here, rolling that out here. And then they get so angry at him, they try to throw him off a cliff. So understand, these religious, righteous people couldn't even obey the fundamental commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, unless that means tossing someone off a cliff, and I don't think that counts. So, so this is what you see, just the hypocrisy in these people. Luke chapter 13, here it is. Jesus is uh, teaching in a synagogue, and it happens to be the Sabbath day, and we'll see why that's a big deal. Luke 13, ver chapter 13, verse 10. Now he, this is Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Okay, so Jesus has now left kind of that chapter 12, verse 1 to 13, verse 9, kind of long sermon of warning, and then he starts traveling. He's continuing to go to Jerusalem, and he passes a synagogue. Okay, this is 
This is common to Jesus to teach and preach in the synagogues. And he apparently gets asked to be the guest preacher on this day. I don't know if they really understood or, or knew what he was going to say. But he, he walks in and he's in this synagogue. And just understand something with synagogues just so you get kind of a framework. Um, it's not a temple, okay? A, a temple is where you did ceremonies and sacrifices. A synagogue was where you basically taught the Old Testament law. It was basically where someone would get up. They would preach. They would teach. They would sing songs. They would, they would hear this word given. And there's always someone called a ruler. He's like the chairman that would actually decide who gets to speak, who gets to teach, who gets to kind of say these things. And so here Jesus passes by a synagogue, and he gets asked to be the preacher and teacher for uh, this particular Saturday, which is when they would, 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 uh, would celebrate. So synagogue just means gathering place. Historically, historians tell us that just in Galilee, which is where he did most of his ministry, there were like over 250 synagogues. So um, it's like walking out of here, driving down Route 17, and like every like, you know, uh, 0.2 miles, you see another church, right? Um, um, this is what it looked like. So there were just synagogue after synagogue. So Jesus naturally passes by when he goes and he's teaching. And in this particular instance, he looks out among the crowd as he's teaching and he sees a woman hiding in the shadows. And she's been bent over. She's been crippled for 18 years. You want to talk about chronic back pain. Okay, some of you guys kind of know what it's like to hurt your back. Some of you guys have to get up during the service because you can't sit long because your, your back hurts. I mean, think about 18 years of chronic disabling pain. Now, understand, this woman for sure is an outcast, okay? So she's not someone who's looked favorably upon when she enters into the, the church gathering, all right? She's the one who people actually, the, the prevailing theological thought that we saw last week was, if you've got a deformity, if you've got illness, if you've got something wrong with you, God must be punishing you and there must be sin in your life. Right, we saw that in, in John 9, right? That the man born blind, all the, all the religious people come and say, well, well, who sinned? You or your parents. I mean, that must be why you're, why you're blind. And then you got Old Testament Job, who's got calamity that God orchestrates, letting Satan do all of that. And, he, and his friends come up to counsel him, and he basically says, hey, Job, you're, Job, you're not coming clean, man. I mean, you'd be, you'd be out of this suffering. You'd be out of this punishment if you would just confess the hidden sin in your life. Job's going, I, I honor God. I love God. I so... We're seeing here that, that this is how she felt. She knows that people look at her with disdain. She knows that people think that she must have sin in her life, that she has reason to have this quote-unquote punishment by God, which is all craziness. And so here you have this woman who is in physical pain and spiritual pain. The disabling spirit is really demonic, right? You see Jesus all the time deliver from oppression and possession of demons throughout his gospel. We've seen him do that. We've talked about that. So here this woman has physical pain, spiritual pain. She's got back pain. She's been hunched over. She's an outcast. She's been scorned at. She's been doubled over. And we don't know why she's exposed to this. All we know is up until this point in her life, what has marked her is humiliation. Just a life of humiliation. So when Jesus sees her, you can feel probably in her, she, she probably doesn't like it. Like, she's already faced enough humiliation. She's not there to be seen. She's not there because, you know, she wants someone to call her out. Trust me, she's hiding in the shadows. She's probably in the back. She's probably shuffled over. And as soon as Jesus opens his mouth and calls out to her, you bet she's getting red. Okay? She's, she's feeling anxiety. She's feeling scared. She's probably thinking, oh, no, is, is Jesus calling me out because he's going to tell me that I'm crippled because I got sin in my life? I've heard this one before. She's probably got a lot of things going through her head as she's lived a life of humiliation and 
Jesus comes to her and he calls out to her, maybe like he will do to some of you this morning. And he sees in the crowd, he sees her suffering, he sees her pain, and he calls out to her. And as she's sitting there, as her ears are burning, as she's mortified, as she's fearful, Jesus lays his hands on her. This is like, this is identifying with suffering. This is tender. This is compassionate Jesus. This is, it's okay. This is, feel my touch, know who I am. And in an instance, he says, you're freed from your disability. And the demonic and the physical leave. In an instant, right? Immediate. Now, um, as he says this, understand, some, some of you are thinking maybe um, after she's healed, she's got to go to some physical therapy, right, to, to kind of work out the kinks. Now, understand, in, in Jesus' economy, right, in God's economy, when, when God converts, when God transforms, there's no, like, physical therapy needed, okay? He makes you new. He fixes. He heals immediately and completely. That's what you see here. You see it all throughout the Gospel of Luke. You see Jesus consistently give full-time, over-the-top, divine healing healing, right? You see that physically and you see that spiritually. And here he demonstrates that here that immediately she is healed and wholeness comes to her. And amazing. Can you imagine in an instant being bent over in chronic pain for 18 years, all of a sudden you're able to stand up straight with no illness, no pain, and you feel the the spiritual ailment of the demonic leave you. What freedom. So, So what does she do? She glorifies God. Right, that, that, that's normal, right, for somebody who has seen Jesus, someone who witnesses him, them, free them from their bondage, free them from their illness. That, that's natural. You glorify God. You see this all the time in the gospel. Sometimes they do it out of um, ignorance or naivety, and sometimes they do it out of rightness. They really understand who Jesus is. We don't really know here, but I think that she genuinely is glorifying God and giving great glory to God for him healing both of these things in her life. Now, it would be nice if the text stopped there, Right? Like, this is a good day so far in the synagogue, right? I mean, this woman who had an 18-year defect and had demonic oppression is delivered. Let's just, let's all join in glorifying God, right? Let's all be happy. Let's all celebrate. Let's all give praise to God incarnate who's with us, who's teaching, who's preaching. No, that's not what happens, right? Verse 14, look at, look at this. But the ruler, right, the religious guy, the self-righteous guy, the ruler of the synagogue, indignant. I mean, this is just fuming mad. This isn't like, mm, that's weird, let's keep going. That's, that's outright outrage at a woman being healed. See the coldness of his heart. She's indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. That's why he's mad. The issue here is there was a healing done and it was on a specific day. That's the issue. That's why he's outraged. So she, he's indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and he says to the people, notice he doesn't even have the gall to look at Jesus. He looks at everybody else. And he says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. <laughs> so that this ruler, who I said is kind of like the acting chairman of, of this particular synagogue, in the midst of this rejoicing woman is this religious man. Now, religious people tend to be very, very critical. They're hardly ever happy, 
Um, they're, they're very burdened. Their, their whole mantra is, okay, sometimes some people are right, sometimes some people are wrong, but I'm always right, okay? So, but no, no, you're never always right. Jesus is the only man who is always right. So you've got Jesus and then everybody else. So the religious come along, and they're, they're more criticizing, they're more harsh, they're more oppressive, unlike Jesus. And so here he sees this. He doesn't like this. He's critical. His disposition and demeanor is indignant, and his issue is the Sabbath. So he gets up to publicly rebuke Jesus in front of everyone. Listen, if you're going to rebuke somebody, don't do it to Jesus, okay? Like, you, you can do it to everyone else, but, but you rebuke Jesus. Jesus is God. So, Jesus, I love it. I always say, just read the Gospels, the way that Jesus deals with situations, the things that he says you can't make up, okay? He just always knows how to perfectly respond to somebody and put them in a corner, okay? And so, that's what he's going to do here because he's God. He discerns thoughts. He's omniscient, okay? He, he understands all those things. So, here the issues of Sabbath. He gets up to publicly, basically, humiliate Jesus and criticize Jesus. And he says, hey, um, we're not supposed to do stuff like this on the Sabbath. Don't you know that it's a Sabbath day? Um, don't you know our laws? Don't you know the, the 24 chapters we threw in our Talmud, which is our Jewish collections of laws and doctrines? Do you know all the things we added to, to what work is? And, and is this considered a work? I mean, she stood up. She's erect. I don't, I don't know if that might be work. So uh, let's keep that to Friday or Sunday, but not Saturday. That's what's going on in his posture. That's what's going on in his heart as he basically claims that this is a sin. The religious are always looking to pick a fight with Jesus. We've been seeing that. The battlefield this morning is the topic of the Sabbath. Now, now just briefly, in case you're like, you got no history on that, you don't understand what this is. Um, If you look in the beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you see that God is a God who creates, right? And he he speaks to make everything. And he makes animals, and he makes planets, and he makes makes rivers and waters, and he he makes man. And then after he's done, it says that he rested on the seventh day. Then you've got Exodus 20 that, that comes down the line where he actually writes with his finger on stone, hey, you guys work for six and then take a day off model what I did in creation. Now, it's not because God was tired. It's not because God needs to rest. God doesn't need to rest. He wants you to rest so you know even when you're resting, he's still in sovereign control of everything. So it's actually an act of faith to take a Sabbath day. And so here as he's doing this, as, 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 as we're seeing this kind of unfold, it was God who defined the Sabbath. Sabbath just means to stop. That's what that word literally means. It means just to stop. So, so in the Old Testament, the, the Sabbath was Saturday, not Sunday. Now, once Jesus rose, the church makes it Sunday because it's a new era of human history. It's based off the resurrection of Jesus. We have a new calendar. So we celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday. They used to celebrate it on, on uh, a pattern after Genesis 1 and 2 on um, Saturday. And so here you have the Sabbath day patterned after God in resting and Here's what happened and always happens. The religious took God's laws. They took God's good gifts. The Sabbath was a gift to us to enjoy recreation, to enjoy um, rest, to enjoy looking at God and worshiping God and celebrating God, to do do acts of justice and mercy. You're going to see in the Old Testament a lot. So he gave us the Sabbath to do those things. And here's what the religious do. Um, God says, hey, take a day off and rest. And we say, that's a great idea, God. And then the religious say, no, let's, let's add to and let's make a list and a rule book on what it means to rest. Wait, so I, I got to look at my nap schedule and know if I'm taking a nap right. Did you lift your head six inches off your pillow? Did you? I mean, it's insanity, and you actually see this historically. And so what they did with the Sabbath is they added 24 chapters of rules and laws to say what work meant on the Sabbath. What defines that? So it was an oppressive system, so 
Then they would say, memorize the rules, obey the rules, and if you don't, we'll discipline you for not. So what was meant to be one of the best days of the week became one of the most cruelest days of the week. Instead of the Sabbath being a yard to play in, it was a prison you couldn't get out of. Let me just give you a few examples of Sabbath restrictions. This is how they define work. This is what, imagine this today, right? You could not do this as work. Um, You couldn't carry your pen. Well, forget taking notes today, right? That's an act of work. Um, You couldn't carry your books. If you you had class today or you wanted to study at home online, some of you college students, you, you couldn't carry your books. Don't pick them up. Leave them. They better be open to the page you're supposed to be open to. You couldn't light a fire. So if it's wintertime, bummer, fire pit's no good. You can't boil an egg. Some of you guys love your hard-boiled eggs. Some of you meatheads in here that love to work out, you couldn't do that. Um, you couldn't take a bath because if the water falls on the floor, you might have to clean it up and dry it. So we all smell on Sunday. You couldn't tie a knot. Everyone's tripping over the shoes. They added to the scriptures. They created this system. We could go on and on and on. I mean, do you see? This isn't like um, light. This isn't just kind of like understandable. This is insane. This is burdensome. It's unbiblical. It is exaggerated. That is what the religious system did. And that's what Jesus came to tear down. This is what they were a part of. And so understanding that, here's what's happening in Luke. The art, he's arguing with Jesus over, well, I don't know what this is then. I mean, was this healing a work? Because I know all my laws I know all my rules. I'm not sure if you can do that because it's a Sabbath day. He has no regard for the woman who was healed. That's what happens when you grow very religious. You grow arrogant. You shrink in compassion. You point the figure at everyone. You don't notice any hurting around you. There's no empathy in your heart. There's no love in your heart. It is, it is coddled up into this arrogant, angry, bolsterous, how dare you, how dare you, how dare you, how dare you. And we're seeing that in this man. And his reaction is that of a man whose heart God has never changed because God's heart is what? One of compassion. You ever, you ever wonder why, why in the world does Jesus heal so much? Like he could have done anything to prove he was God, right? He didn't have to heal people to prove he was God. He could have just said temple and a temple showed up. Mountain, a mountain showed up. And he could have said anything, lake, and a lake showed up, right? He could have done anything to prove he was God. You know what? He, why he healed? It wasn't just to reveal he was God. It was to show the heart of God. It was to show the compassion of God. It was to show the concern and care and tender affection of God towards his creation. Amazing. And here's the thing. As he shows the heart of God, it infuriates the synagogue ruler. Now, the synagogue ruler never denies the miracle, right? He doesn't say, hey, that didn't happen, right? He, he fully acknowledges it and sees it. He doesn't say it doesn't happen. And that's why, by the way, just, just in case, and I, I might be jumping into a huge <laughs> can of worms with, with this statement. I'm going to say it anyways, okay? So, so, so get up. Miracles, in case you're wondering, you, you've been taught, grown up, that, that miracles save people, that, that, that we should do miracles, and miracles produce faith. Miracles don't produce faith. They strengthen faith, 
Okay, there's only one thing that can save someone, and that is the risen person work of Jesus Christ. So, um, miracles don't save anybody. They might strengthen faith in them, they might bolster faith in them, but they don't transform a heart. They don't regenerate them. So, so listen, it is better. It's not wrong. Man, we, we pray for people to be healed. We pray that God would, would heal them in those ways from imperfections and, and hurtings and pains. I've sat by hospital beds and prayed that God would deliver people from illness and that God would bring them back and save them from, from immediate death. We, we we gladly pray for those things, but that's not going to transform a life. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms a life. So some of us, I think, have grown up with some confusion thinking that we should try to perform all these miracles to save people. Well, there's only one thing that saves. It's called the gospel, the good news, right? So we strengthen people's faith through them seeing God work, through seeing God act, but that alone transforms life. So it's better that you, with courage, with love, with meekness, with humility, tell and share the person work of Jesus 10,000 times over, then you beg God to see a miracle. Okay, and you, and you might see him. God might show up. God might act. But we beg God to transform lives through the power of his gospel. We're a gospel people. We're a people centered around Jesus who does care, who does show compassion, who does heal. But that's not the mark of transformation. I mean, you can see healings all day long. That's, that, that's the thing with this guy. He saw the healing right in front of his face. It doesn't transform his soul. He's not repentant. He doesn't see his sin. He doesn't see his desperate need for a savior who is holy and he is not holy in need of a payment to be paid in full of his debt. He doesn't see any of that. He just sees in arrogance what he thinks is wrong with the situation. And so this is what he does. Because there's nothing in the law of God that says you can't help someone on the Sabbath. That's clear throughout the Old Testament and the New. And they knew that. So he tries to make up a law, a Sabbath law. Well, you can't heal then on the Sabbath. Well, well, that's weird. I mean, how would they do that anyways? They're not Jesus. <laughs> so so if, it's, if you can only heal connected to Jesus, then why would you even need to make a law for that? You don't even have the power to do that. And so here, verse 15, here's how Jesus answers. And I told you, he goes after those who are self-righteous. He says, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to, the, to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? I love Jesus. Jesus stops him dead in his tracks. And I love it. He just asks questions. And he looks at the man because he knows the Mishnah, right? The Jewish laws, the book that holds all those, prescribes that you can take your animal out and give it water and feed it if it's hungry. As long as you don't put burden on his back, you can take it and do that. Is that not work? He's saying, you guys all do that. It's more than an issue of the law. It's an issue of compassion. And that's why he says here, she's a daughter of Abraham. That's just signifying her Jewishness. She's one of your own people, and you don't have compassion for your own, yet you care more about your ox and your donkey? than one of your own people? Do you, do you see how confusing that is? Do you see how silly that is? Do you see how hypocritical that is? That's what Jesus is showing to her. How do you not have compassion on this woman who's endured terrible suffering for 18 years? Now here's the thing. I think in this moment they're well aware of all the Old Testament passages and texts that clearly say and demonstrate that you can do good and show mercy, that that's what God is after on the, even the Sabbath day. 
You can go to Isaiah chapter 1. If you want to read Isaiah chapter 1, he'll basically say, hey, all these Sabbath and ceremonies and stuff, don't you know that's not the worship I'm after? The worship I'm after is actually doing good, showing mercy, cleaning your wicked heart. So, so here, just like he went after Israel, he's going after the religious, going, you know what the Sabbath is for? It's for cleaning your wicked heart, doing good, showing mercy. Why would you not do that here? You guys have all read the Old Testament law. You have it memorized. You guys should know that this is something that you should be doing. You should know this is something that's okay. How come when I do it, now you're angry and don't want me to do it? You see the hypocritical nature because there was no way. Here's the issue, guys. The pride that was so wedged in their heart, there was no way they were about to admit there was something wrong with them. No way. There was no way they were going to say, wait, maybe I am a hypocrite. Maybe this is God incarnate. Maybe this is God in the flesh. Maybe this is the Messiah that has come to redeem and ransom and save sinners. Maybe this is someone we should consider and turn to in repentance. There there was none of that. And that's why you have to see the underlying implications in Jesus' question. Jesus' question is basically saying, who's really honoring God? You? Who doesn't want to show any kindness or compassion and wants me done away with or me who wants to do good? Who's really honoring God in this situation? Look at the response, verse 17. He said these things, and all his adversaries, that's the ruler of the synagogue and everybody who agreed with him, they were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. Two responses. The religious rejected it, and the receptive rejoiced. The ruler and all who agree with him were, it says, put to shame. That's like humiliated publicly, right? But not humiliated to a place of repentance. Not humiliated to a place of, man, maybe I've got this whole thing wrong. Maybe I can't barter with God. Maybe I can't enter the kingdom of God through all of the things that I keep, all of the rules that I keep, all of the laws that I keep. Maybe there was none of that. There was just further hostility. So the more the truth was laid before him and the more the message of the truth and seeing the truth was laid before him, the more hostile he grew. The more the religious, the self-righteous grew in hostility. You'll see this throughout the gospel of Luke. Um, now, now here's the thing. Maybe there are some of you in this room who the more the truth is laid before you, the more the, the message of Jesus is laid before you, you don't, you don't grow into a humility that saves. You continue to grow into a hostility that damns you. And, and maybe you identify with the synagogue ruler this morning. And you're like, I just hate it when people talk to me. I'm only here because someone pestered me, right? I'm only sitting in the seat because somebody just annoyed me enough. I said, fine, I'll do it, and then don't bother me again, right? So, so you're here, and you're hearing the truth of Jesus, and you're going, man, this only creates hostility in me. This only creates in me a, a wanting to not know Jesus and not to see Jesus. Um, he, here's what I would say to you, that the scriptures are very clear that it, it is the kindness of Jesus Christ that is meant to lead you to what's called repentance. We talked about repentance last week. That, that God is patient with you, that he comes to you and speaks to you through his word, through creation, through his own image bearers, through the person and work of Jesus, that, he, that he, he longs to see repentance and faith, people turn from sin, that he longs to see hostility soften the heart to a place of humility. 
Well, they can acknowledge that there's no merits or works or righteousness that they can do to earn the kingdom of God. And Colossians 1 will actually teach that it's this hostility of mind that Jesus in the cross of Christ actually does away with and reconciles and makes you one with God. He talks about a hostile mind. He talks about this very thing we're seeing in the ruler. We're seeing it in the religious ruler. And he replaces it, he says, with this holy, blameless, spotless life of Jesus. So, so here's what hostility is. And here's what, I want to help you kind of understand what's happening in your heart maybe if you're feeling that way. Um, we're all by nature made to enjoy God, to worship God, and make much of God. So, so when we do that, when we celebrate his glory, when we love him, when we worship him, when we're found in him, when we take all that he's made and we don't use what he's made to find identity there and find security there, we use it to actually point us to the one who gave it, you become satisfied. You, you walk in fullness of life, the scriptures will call it. So if you don't do that, if you basically only love and worship what is made, that's just very simply idolatry. It's the easiest way I can, can, can claim it and, and define it. If you do that, it says you will grow a hostile mind, Colossians 1. Now, a hostile mind just means you got to blame somebody, you got to get mad at somebody for your frustration and lack of fullness of life that you feel. So you, so you live in hostility. So in this case, the ruler doesn't like that someone else is God, that someone else is saying how the system works, that someone else is saying how righteousness should be achieved. He doesn't like that, so he grows in hostility, and he blames Jesus. He puts his frustration on Jesus. Not a good idea to put it on him. Now, now you can just walk through your life and look, maybe just do a, do a checklist of how you maybe blame shift and grow frustrated in your hostility of mind. Maybe for some of you, it's your work situation. Your, the work environment, you think you deserve more credit where you are. So when people don't do it because you find your security there, because you're bound up there, because fullness of life is when all of that is good and in order, you get angry, you get frustrated, and you blame, and you get bitter. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you thought that your spouse was actually designed to complete you. Thank you, Jerry Maguire. That's, that's not true. Actually, Jesus completes you. Jesus makes you whole. Jesus fixes you. So maybe you thought, hey, I'm going to get married, and, and these little cute behaviors that, that I like now that eventually I don't like anymore, I'll train out of them. Well, you couldn't do that, so you're frustrated now. You're bitter now, so you blame shift in a hostile mind because your spouse is no longer giving you fullness of life that you want. Maybe it's your children. I don't know. You thought fullness of life was having the kid who loved Jesus like you or as smart as you or would do things like you or the athlete you were or so you try to pin him down and work in him you go frustrated bitter you're growing in hostility because you're trying to find joy satisfaction fullness of life in your kids your kids never meant to we're never giving you that actually meant to show you that you're, you're dirty and wicked right I mean our kids were giving us to show us that we're not good parents that we need grace that we need a savior that we need to lean on him same thing in a marriage right it wasn't given you to say hey let this complete you it's man wow I'm really selfish I'm really imperfect I'm really hostile. Wow, I really am not a perfect husband, really not a perfect wife. Wow, I like that one better. I covet his neighbor's uh, spouse. I cover his neighbor's wife. And you grow in that and see that Jesus is always the solution. So until you deal with your hostile mind that you have that is bent that way by nature and choice as a sinner, nothing is going to change. Jesus is the only one who can take your hostile mind and replace it with the above reproach, perfect, holy life of Jesus Christ. That's what he does in in the cross, death, and resurrection of himself. That's what he does. He makes you new. He takes a mind that was dis disenfranchised and wasn't seeing things right to now enjoying God and finding fullness of life in him, in Jesus, in his son. Okay, so you're chasing a mythical creature until you chase Jesus. 
Okay, that, that, that's just the reality. That's what the scriptures will lay out for you over and over and over again. That you're chasing empty treasures. And so you're jumping from one thing to one thing to one thing, finding vanity upon vanity upon vanity until Jesus in his mercy calls out to you. And he sees you in your bondage to that sin, in your bondage to that hostile mind, in you loving to worship all that was made and neglecting him and trotting his planet. He says, I can make it right. I can reconcile you to myself. I can give you fullness of life. I can deal with the issue of sin. I can deal with the issue of idolatry. I can deal with the issue of your heart longing for something and chasing after something that will never satisfy the longings that you're looking for. And Jesus alone does it. And that's what we see in this woman as we see the cross and resurrection of Jesus. We see a picture of the person who is enslaved, bent over by sin, weighted down by it, can't get out, can't escape, years of pain, years of anguish, years of hopelessness, years of not being free from the hostility that you, the merry-go-round that you run in, and one day, and it might be this morning, Jesus calls out to you, and he says, I'm the answer, and I see you in your spiritual oppression, in your bondage to sin, in your hostile mind, and if you humble yourself and come out of the hostility and turn to Christ and throw yourself on the mercy that he offers in his person and work. He says he makes you new and he pays your debt in full that is owed and he gives you what's called a new mind and a new heart. So now there's a rewiring that takes place and we begin to grow and begin to see more of until we reach glory of the fullness of that which is Jesus Christ in our life. All of a sudden, the pleasures that you chased become more dim, become more tasteless, and Jesus grows more tasteful. It, it's amazing to me as I, I just feel like I see a picture in, in this woman where he fully knows her mess, and I think she was so terrified to be shown any love, any compassion, any mercy. And yet Jesus, by putting his hand on her, shows her, I fully see your mess, I fully see your inability, I fully see your stuff, I fully see the damage of sin in your life, yet I'm calling you out of that. I'm fully loving you despite fully knowing all the mess that's within you. Maybe there's some of you guys in this room, and I know there are some, who identify with this woman. You've had 18 years of pain psychological pain, emotional pain, physical pain. And here's the thing. Some of you guys are going, well, I don't know. I've never called out to Jesus, never pursued Jesus in my pain and suffering. Well, you know what's awesome about the God of the Bible? That he doesn't wait for people to come to him. He pursues. He's a God who in the synagogue comes after the woman. That's an initiating love of God. That's what it's called in the Bible, that God acts first. God comes after you, and God grabs you by the, coat, by the, by the coattail. Now, if you're, if you're at arrogance running, he might be, he might be merciful, merciful enough for you in unrepentant sin, just running your own way, rebelling. He does it a couple ways, but one way might be he grabs you by the coat collar as you're about to hit by a Mack truck and die condemned to hell. He might rip you out of that, save your life, show you grace and mercy. You start worshiping 
worshiping. Others of you, it might be just deep, burdened. I'm, I, I'm aware of my pain like this woman. I see it before me. I see the hopelessness. I'm not, I'm not acting like there's any mirage of, of futility here. I'm not trying to act like there's something else that can satisfy me. I don't really know where to go. And Jesus then, in loving compassion, comes to you, puts his hands on you, and says, son, daughter, you can be mine. Only in the purchasing work of my cross and my resurrection. And he comes to you in your suffering and in your pain, and he identifies there. That's the beauty of Jesus, the only person, the only God that exists who identifies with what he's made. Every other God, every other deity of every system is hands off, never making a world out of love and intimacy, but just out of wanting to do it and then asking for them to perform for himself, and God does not do that. God makes in delight, God makes an intimate love, and then he says, you can't earn any peace with me on your own. I'm gonna initiate, I'm gonna go after, I'm going to pursue, and I'm gonna make it right. So I don't know where you find yourself this morning. Some of you guys have very, very hostile hearts. And you still come. And, and you'll see in Romans 1, eventually it's a very dangerous place to be when you let it just sit on your hostile mind, hostile mind, hostile mind, to where you grow so hard that there's no place left for repentance and God finally says, okay, go do it. Go chase it. How's that working out for you? Still jumping from relationship to relationship to relationship. And that's what happens when we chase and find fullness of life and what's made and not the maker is benchmarks of your life will be blame and frustration. Until Jesus intervenes and calls out to you and initiates in his sovereign love, which he might be doing to some of you this morning. So like the woman, do you surrender in humility and repentance and say, Jesus, I hear you. Jesus, I understand your call. I understand the way to my sin. I understand that I cannot achieve. I can't merit. I understand that wrath is upon me, that, that the wages of sin is eternal death. I realize the seriousness of this in light of a holy, righteous God. Would you save me? Do you cry out to him? Do you welcome him in that way? Because Jesus knows how to do it for each person. And that's why I, I love this picture because it's a picture of Jesus who still brings the outcast out of the shadows. He goes into the darkest spaces of sin in your life, and he says, there's hope for you. Like, you can still come out. Like, I know, some of you guys are like, man, I've gone farther than anybody's gone. Well, you don't know the person sitting next to you. So, I mean, just the heinous, wicked thoughts you've felt, the things you've done by action or in your thought life, the ways you've maybe even acted upon other people or done things, there is just utter prevailing wickedness that you see in your life and you know that you're chasing to find fullness of life. That's what's even producing the sin, producing the wickedness. And Jesus says, even in me seeing all of that, I'm saying there's hope for you. I'm calling you out of the shadows. You've shuffled in the back, and he's saying, I want to be brought into the light. The light is where healing is. That's why Jesus is called the light of the world. And if you stay in the shadows and stay in the back, you may stay there all the way to eternity. And so Jesus, I feel like that's why we just got to be so careful of the self-esteem gospel because the self-esteem gospel says, man, I love Jesus, I'm awesome, and he saved me. You weren't saved because you were awesome. Like, like, like there's nothing awesome in you. He didn't save you because you're special. He makes you special through his person and work. 
I don't know messages you've heard, but man, that's the message of the scripture. So that's good news for everybody because now everybody's on the same playing field. Now there's not like varsity, JV, special people, not special people. There's, hey, there's people in desperate need who are wicked, who are rebellious, and there is God who relentlessly pursues in his sovereign initiating love and grasps people into a kingdom based upon nothing they did so they can just like the woman say, I'm bringing glory to him, man. I didn't go after Jesus. I shuffled into my sin. I wasn't looking for him. I wasn't wanting him. I was not desiring him. He knew everything about me, yet in knowing everything about me, all my shame, all my hopelessness, he came after me and saved me. That's the, that's the good news. Isn't that good news? I don't know what good news you've heard or what good news you've been taught, but the good news is that you can't. He frees you from you doing, and that's why maybe some of you are absolutely exhausted this morning, because you are just like the ruler who misunderstood God and the Sabbath. The whole point the ruler was missing with the Sabbath was it was a day to stop working and start enjoying God. To stop trying to impress God, start enjoying what God has given you in Jesus. To stop trying to earn righteousness for yourself and enjoy the righteousness that Jesus has given you. Jesus is your rest. Jesus is your Sabbath. And what's amazing is, back in chapter 6, Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who made the Sabbath. You're trying to tell the maker of the Sabbath, who was, according to Hebrews 1, their creation, how to run the Sabbath? Where are you finding it this morning? Where are you finding wholeness and healing for your sin sickness? Where are you finding it as you chase fullness of life and everything but him? Where, where? How's your heart this morning? Let's ask him to help us. God, we desperately need your rectifying work. We desperately need to be brought into the light. Lord, we we said last week that repentance is not just for the non-Christian, it's also for the Christian, that we are saved by repenting and turning to Christ, and we are sustained by repenting and turning to Christ through the Holy Spirit's power. God, would you keep those that are yours as you promise? Would you save some this morning? Would you call out to some and reveal in only the ways that you can unveil their eyes and show them the mercy and compassion and kindness of God that was meant to lead them to repentance? Father, would you help some who have a hostility of mind Would you unveil to them the wonderful news that there is fullness of life to be found and show them the damning nature of a hostile mind and the beautiful news of a humility of a heart that saves. God, would you give rest and joy to some who are just plain exhausted, some who are just desperately trying to appease and do and work, would you help them to understand that narrow path to walk where they can find rest in Jesus and pour their lives out for the kingdom, but out of joy and out of delight, not out of earning and not out of merit? Would they maybe just have some time this morning to enjoy you? God, we're thankful for the Lord's Supper that visibly reminds us of the rest that you give in your broken body and in your shed blood. That as we see in the Lord's Supper, the visible reminder of a God who pursues us with initiating love and puts his hand on us, those of us who are weary, exhausted, tired, aware of our brokenness, aware of our need, aware of our hopeless state, God, would you make us straight in the gospel? Would you make our backs upright? 
would you fully form what has been marred through sin? And God, might we worship you as this woman worship because we've heard from you and seen you this morning. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.